Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? This episode is very special to me because I just met David in March of this year through the Adoptive Voices Writing Group, and his participation has been nothing short of completely authentic. I immediately noticed his ability to show up wholeheartedly in the adoptee community. He so willingly shares each week his feelings about his adoption experience and how putting pen to paper played a major role over the years in his journey of healing and recovery. When I asked David to join me in a conversation today, he said yes, for the purpose of helping other adoptees navigate the experience of being separated from their original family. We're both from Chicago, born during the baby scoop era, and raised as an only child. I like to find the commonalities with other people because that's where we can begin to engage and learn from one another. I believe David's story will be inspirational and shed more light on how adoptees who are in unhealthy environments can discover a way out. Wait no longer. I share with you now a most wonderful conversation with the beautiful soul, David. David, I thank you for having a conversation with me today. I believe a good place to start is how I met you this past March in the Adoptive Voices writing group on Wednesdays. From the first week, I observed you to be a great participant in sharing your writing from the most authentic and transparent place. You write so well. At the time of this recording, it was just yesterday that we gathered together via Zoom with other adoptees to write and share our words. Tell me a little bit about your most recent experience in the group and how joining it has impacted your life so far. Well, I think uh, joining it definitely has finally given me a sense of validation, you know, hearing other people's stories. I'd like to write. There was a time in my life after a reunion that I was pretty down and I found a lot of healing in writing. But then I I left it alone for, for a long time throughout my 40s. And when I saw the, the group, I saw a post in uh, Haley Radke's Facebook group and I saw a post like a day before the group was going to start, and I knew immediately that was something that I had to do. Going through a, a reunion and a secondary rejection definitely left me feeling depression. And I think the process of writing definitely calms that for me. It gives me, it gives me a little peace, and uh, definitely reading it out loud is a great source of strength to be able to to speak my truth and have others listen and understand. Yeah. I, you know, I often wonder which one is maybe harder for people, the writing or the sharing. And it sounds like the sharing is, is even more healing for you. Yes, it is harder for me to share than to write. I, I'm not used to being able to speak my truth and have others understand it because I'm very new to the adoptee community. So when I when I read out loud, I'm kind of looking at the screen, like seeing people's reactions. And then 
at the end of our shares, there's always a place where others can give their opinions. And I'm always like, okay, what are people going to say? But it's just been wonderful. There's, there's no judgment. It's a very safe space. And I'm really enjoying it. And I hear you guys are going to do it again. And I'm, 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 I'm in. So. Oh, that's good to know. Did anything in particular happen last night that you would like to share? The prompt last night, and I'm really liking the prompts. Um, I, this is the kind, this is kind of the first one I didn't go totally towards the prompt, but the prompt was to kind of explain your adoptee superpower. Right. And I was having a really hard time coming up with that one. So within my, uh, my superpower, I would think would be holding on to my truth, always being honest and try just waiting for a place to kind of release it. So I really couldn't put that into what I wanted to write. So what I did was I wrote a letter to my younger self, mm. um, a, a letter to, to myself approximately age nine or 10, which is about the time when I learned how adoption was going to affect my life. And I found it very healing. Um, there were, there there were tears involved, definitely, in writing it. I'm glad I got through talking about it without without that, but it, it, it's a process for me. And, and, that, and, you know, the last several weeks, I've been writing really angry. And I think that it, that's just because it's just stuff that I needed to get out. I needed to get out in writing, and I needed to get out in speaking to the group. And, and you know, in writing, you have time to kind of think more in detail about about your story. So, you know, unlike, unlike a Zoom meeting, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of Zoom meeting and groups out there that in adoptee circles, and but you really can't get too in-depth. Being able to write it out gets you more in-depth and, and, and makes you be able to share more of your story. I, you know, I was just talking with another adoptee earlier today uh, who's in the group as well, and she was saying how she felt that the anger is diminishing with each week. And, and she thinks that what people are doing is they are getting it out. So then it's like, it can go from a wound to a scar. And so that sounds like what you're describing, you're experiencing. Oh, I agree a hundred percent with that. Um, and, you know, listening to other people's stories is always definitely healing. It's not just me speaking out loud. It's, it's hearing others. That is, it is, it is so healing. And, you know, it goes back to that validation. It's just, it's very validating for somebody that is, you know, I just turned 50 years old and I just joined the adoptee community. So yeah, I haven't really, I haven't really spoke to a whole lot of uh, adoptees in my life. It's just been incredibly, incredibly healing. Yeah. And, and I was telling Sarah that I was really surprised out of the 30 people that signed up, I would say most aren't brand new to the community and she wasn't surprised, but I wasn't. And it, it's kind of, um, it makes me feel really good to know that more and more adoptees are coming to the community. Because for me, it was probably the most empowering thing I could have done. And I know that I wish I had done it sooner rather than later. And so I'm really glad to know that a lot of people are finding different ways, whether it's um, this group on Facebook or, or somewhere else, to connect with the community. I know a little bit about your story. Um, we're both from Chicago. You were born after me, a little bit after me. So you want to tell me a little bit about your story? Sure. I was born February 26, 1971, 
So it was definitely in the baby scoop era. I was uh, immediately placed for adoption and I went to an adoption agency in uh, North Chicago. Come to find out is a pretty popular <laughs> adoption agency. Uh, it's been called the adoption agency to the stars, I guess, at, at some point. So I spent six weeks in that adoption agency and then I was domestically adopted by my adopted parents Mm -hmm. uh, in April that year. So about six weeks, there's about six weeks that I I really don't have any clue of why I was there and what's it for long. So that's something I've always kind of wondered. Yeah, six, six weeks. In some ways, it it can seem long. I know um, I went into foster care and I know four at four days old, I went into a foster home. So I can see where you're wondering, well, what What's with the six weeks? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so anyway, I, I was adopted by my parents. I've always known I was adopted. I was an only child, and that would play a big role in my life, kind of more than what I would expect, I guess. I felt very lonely in childhood. I was a latchkey kid by the time I was eight or nine, meaning you know, I came home with a key around my neck to an empty house. Parents worked. They we really didn't do a whole lot of things as a family. My dad was very involved in his work. As a matter of fact, I would say between the ages of 10 or maybe 8 and 12, he was just not around. He had two jobs. He worked his his full-time job during the day, and then they had a restaurant that they ran at night. So I would go literally weeks without seeing my dad. Oh, and my. It, Yeah. Wow. And even when he... Yeah, I was just going to say... I'm just thinking, I'm picturing that. So why do you think they adopted? I'm not really sure. And another thing that happened at the ages of 6, 8, 10, 11, and 12, I was in Chicago, a suburb of Chicago, and I got sent to my grandparents' house in California for the whole summer, basically two, two and a half months. And, you know, this was at pretty important ages in my life. And my parents just weren't there because I got sent to live with my grandparents. Now, I'm, those were some of the best times in my childhood. I, I had other kids to play with in, in their neighborhood. It was Southern California, and it was summer, and there was Disneyland and the beach. Sure. So, you know, it, it was it was a good time. But at the same time, it wasn't good for a relationship with my parents because I felt, okay, I was I already wasn't wanted once. And now you are sending me away over and over and over again. So it was, it was very confusing for me. And about the time I was nine, I had evidently said something wrong. And I was in a grocery store with my mom and I had made some comment, just basically repeating something that she had said. And the next thing you know, we're in the parking lot and she's screaming at me and she leaves me in the parking lot, gets in her car and leaves. Mm. And she always said she never left me out of her sight. She just circled around in the parking lot and came back. But I think that was kind of the first time that I realized, oh, okay, I could be left again. I could mm. be on my own again. I need to act a certain way. Right. So shortly after that time, my my dad had sold the, the the restaurant and they decided to move to California and it was definitely their dream to move here not mine they um, after going up in Chicago in the Chicago winters they decided they needed to change so 
but in moving to California, my grandparents are no longer here and any other family members I had were no longer here. And plus I didn't move to the same part of California that they did. So I literally moved to a city where I knew absolutely nobody. All I had was my parents. I had no other family. I had no friends Mm. and I had, and I was, I was a shy kid as well. So I think what ended up happening is after within the first year or two of moving there, I was, I was just so feeling so lonely that I would basically hang out with anybody who wanted to hang out with me. So what happened to me is I started hanging around with the wrong crowd. I was, I was, I just never, never felt comfortable with the move here. I, I seemed like I dressed different. I talked different. I, I did everything different from, from the way things were in Chicago. Yeah. Like, um, like this, the West coast has a totally different vibe. Yeah. Yeah, and especially in the 80s before there was internet and people kind of saw what other people were doing, you know, there was a very different culture. Right. Um, and also and also the culture was I grew up in a, a upper middle class area of of um, suburban Chicago. And I basically in, in a white school with white everything around me. And when I came to California, I was thrown into a, a little bit of a culture shock where I was kind of the minority in the school. So I was having to, to kind of navigate through that, navigate through all this other stuff. And basically, I just, like I said, I was just hanging around with anybody who wanted to hang out with me. What I found is that my friends that I saw had great families. And, you know, and they would have all these big family meals and, and these, these uh, you know, get-togethers. And people would talk to each other and discuss intimate things. I think it was around that time that I really understood that, I was really being neglected mm-hmm. more than anything. I, I, I'm not somebody, you know, my parents never, you know, I wasn't ever abused or anything like that, but there was definitely neglect now that I look back just because I was screaming out for help. I was very angry. Once I started in say, 14, 15, I just became a very, very angry person. And my friends would often comment, how can you talk to your mom like that? Because I would just, I, I was just in pain. It sounds like and they both were really emotionally checked out. They were. Uh, they were. Yeah. And um, it, it definitely has affected our relationship to this day. You know, but when I was 14, you know, I was 14, 15, 16. You know, I started drinking alcohol to kind of cope with my with my feelings. I quit pretty quickly at early age, realized that that was the way that I can kind of deal with things. College was really never mentioned to me. Um, what I kind of realized I needed to do was work and to make money because I needed to get out of there. So that's kind of what I did. I mean, I started ditching school and drinking, and but I worked. I started working full time, and I ended up dropping out of high school at, at uh, 17 in my junior year because all I wanted to work do was work and. And I wanted to move out the day I turned 18. And that's pretty much what I did. So you get, you were able to move when you turned 18 on your own? Correct. Yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty big accomplishment. Well, you know, the one thing I really think I got from my childhood was a sense of independence. And I, pretty, I knew pretty quickly I needed to be independent. I just remember moving here to California and then, you know, kind of being told that I need money is important and you need to go make it. How I was going to make it wasn't really talked about, but, you know, once I started working, I realized, okay, I, you know, you get your first paycheck or two and you're like, okay, 
not really thinking, okay, well, I can go to college and, you know, I can, I can get a career. I can have a, a great career. I just needed to make money in the moment. And, and that's just kind of what I did. And that's just, that's that work ethic. It's pretty much taken me through to my adult years into a business I started. And, you know, that's something that, that, that I just have always had. And I really think that it's from just not just the neglect and just realizing I had to do things on my own. Have you ever had a conversation with your parents about them being emotionally checked out? Yes, uh, I have tried. I, I had a long career with alcohol, and it's not something I'm proud of, but it, it's just something I dealt with. Being mm-hmm. a high-functioning alcoholic or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> mm-hmm. In uh, September of 2018, I realized, okay, I need to I need to stop this. So I finally stopped drinking. But the, the, the great thing that came out of that was a conversation I had with my dad. And, you know, I remember us sitting down and talking for hours. You know, a lot, a lot of tears were shed for me at that time. My dad was somebody who had never once told me he loved me. And my mom is somebody who never showed me she loved me. So, you know, I, I was just never loved in the way I think I, I deserved or I needed, especially as an adoptive child. But I had a really good conversation with my dad. A lot of good came out of that. Was able to process some stuff in the past with him. And he had, he had definitely softened as he'd gotten older. He, I thought he was a much better grandfather than he was a, a, a father. I cannot say that about my mom. But it was this very healing conversation that we had around that time. I also tried to have this, a conversation with my mom about around the same time. I knew it was going to be difficult because my mom is very narcissistic. And, you know, she'll put up three defenses, which is make it about herself ignore the situation altogether or basically claim place the blame on somebody else. So just knowing that's about her, I knew it was going to be a difficult conversation. So I wrote her a letter and so the letter pretty much basically got ignored. And, and so it was really never talked about earlier this year, there was a kind of an event that happened with my, with my dad and a lot of anger came out about around my childhood, basically but it was done. It wasn't done in a way that was going to get anything done. It was just me being mad, basically. So, and a month went by, and I wrote a very, a very thoughtful, caring letter that wasn't placing the blame on anybody. It was just explaining my my truth. Mm-hmm. And and this is something that I've always carried with me, and my truth, and that this is basically what I wrote about last night is. I've never had anybody listen to my truth. You know, I've been carrying this stuff around for 50 years and I wanted my mom to be able to understand. I asked her to read the primal wound. I asked her to talk with me, to sit down and talk, to answer questions about my, my beginnings, basically from there, from her point of view. And I, I wrote like a four page letter and I basically got a three sentence response, mm-hmm. you know, basically ignoring every, every single word I said. So I think there has to come a time where you kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, they just aren't, they just aren't going to get her. They just don't want to get it. Mm-hmm. So what, what do I do from there? I mean, I can do a couple things. I can, I can become estranged from them and have them leave my life, but I, I still want, I still want to maintain a relationship, especially with my dad. So it's, it's a fine line, so I got to figure out what's going to be best for me because being around my mom activates a lot of negative feelings in me. Mm-hmm. But I have to, to kind of get to a place of, of understanding and 
she's just the way she is and things aren't just going to change overnight. They aren't going to change at all. So I can either accept it or I can become estranged for them. And I, I really want a relationship with my dad. They're, they're still the only family I have. So. so they're still together and you focusing on your dad is not a real possibility? Not really when they're both retired and live together. Right. It's, it's kind of tough. I haven't been back to their house since since this event occurred in uh, the first week of January. I haven't seen them since. Both should see how it goes. Both mm-hmm. see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, something you said uh, struck me like, like I really felt it when you said uh, they have not been there for you as they should, as a parent should be for their child. I know there are people that I know who are not adopted say, yeah, my parents were like that too. But when you say, and then me being adopted, like that, it is, it's very different for an adoptee when that happens. We've experienced being relinquished. And now here, again, you're treating me as if you don't know that happened to me. Like something is really off about that. And and your parents seem like people that, should not have adopted. Yes, I've um, from a very early age. I I didn't understand why they why they wanted to adopt a child. Yeah, um, I, I I know that my mom couldn't have children on her own, but I I just don't understand. Especially the the sending me away for I I mean I'm a dad. Uh, my my kids were my first biological family that I saw. I I could never imagine right. sending my kids away for months and not being around them. I, I just a couple of days away in in Las Vegas or something would, you know, we would just be eager to home, get to get home and see them. So mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine being away from them for months at a time. Right. Do you think there are any challenges unique to male adoptees from female adoptees? I, I kind of go back to the anger of my childhood. I mean, that's maybe that's kind of the way that a lot of male adoptees deal with uh, deal with their adoption. Maybe they're angry at the birth mom, mm-hmm. uh, their, their first mom. Maybe they're angry with their adopted parents. But a lot of times, maybe it's maybe just best to be angry and keep things inside rather than speaking your truth and, you know, acknowledging and expressing the emotion that that does go with, with, the, with adoption. And, you know, I know there's a saying coming out of the fog. For me, I think that was out of the fog at a very, very early age. I, I, I kind of realized a lot of things about my parents, about myself, that adoption really affected a lot of things um, for me. Also for me, when I went searching, I really wasn't interested in finding a birth father. I, I, I had one thing in mind, which was to find my birth mom. And that, that, that was my, that was 100% of my focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, to this day, 10 years after secondary rejection, I, I still have not really gone there as far as the paternal side. Just in this last week, I finally ordered a, a DNA test. So maybe we'll see what comes of it. I, I do understand. I actually have pictures of him. I, I received those pictures through my first mom uh, during our reunion. But I, this is something that she did on her own, uh, digging up these pictures from his family. But I'm glad uh, to she this did day, that. I, I'm so glad she did that. 
Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's kind of weird when she gave it to me. She was in tears because of all this stuff that she had to go through. She had to be drugged through her past, basically, to you know contact this family and. Uh, come to find out that my father died in 1978, I believe, in some kind of an accident. So, but I also understand he is also an identical twin. And I, I do have pictures of, of him and his brother from a young age. So obviously, the pictures I have were from young age to maybe 18 years old at the most. So, mm-hmm. yeah, is, it, is, I, his, uh, is his twin still alive? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know their names. And because I'm not in a relationship with my my first mom anymore, I really have nobody to ask. So okay, okay. Uh, there's there's no name on the original birth certificate. So all I'm really left with is DNA. But I also understand that uh, according to the non-identifying information that was in my um, in my file, uh, he he may have had a younger daughter as well. Okay, so you may have an, a sibling. Yes, another sibling. When I uh, I do do have a, a half sister that that I, I met, it was a great relationship while it lasted. Mm-hmm. How long did it last? So, I I went searching. I, I guess I'll just go back through my reunion a little bit. I, in 2007 is when I I did the non-identifying information, and I I got that through the adoption agency. You know, it's just basic general information at the time of you know, looks and my, my, uh, my birth mom being a student and my, you know, some information about my birth father, even though he wasn't on the, the birth certificate, you know, it was nice to have that information. And I, I basically did nothing with it for three years. So 2010, when I, I finally did the search, went back to the adoption agency, gave them their $500 and they basically did a Google search and found her in a half an hour after making me wait a couple months. <laughs> but that's another story. The agency charged you $500 to give you non-identifying information? Or give no, you they, everything. No, uh, in 2007, I forgot what they charged me. I know they did charge me something. Maybe it was like a hundred bucks or something okay. for the the non the non identifying information. It was five hundred dollars to to do the search. To do the search. Okay, was that through the agency or just a, a place you found on your own? No, that was through the agency. It was it was a very easy process, and I feel I feel very bad for so many stories I hear of of what people. I've had to go through to, you know, including yourself, uh, you know, to go through to find their original families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just talking with an adoptee the other day. It sounds like, like your situation where there's a search where you can pay a few hundred dollars or whatever, but it's through the agency. It's like, it's like a, I don't know, like another way of them making money. I, I don't know why that rubs me the wrong way, but it does. It's through the agency. Yeah, that, that something about that is troubling to me. But I understand agencies need to make money. I, I totally get that. This is their way. But it feels like they're, again, taking advantage of vulnerable people. That's what it feels like to me. They're taking advantage of us. Because they know we want this information. I was just talking to somebody about this very thing. You pay whatever it is, almost. I know when I, 10, what, 11 years ago, I would have paid really anything they said to pay because I wanted this information. And they know that. And I think they feed on that. And that, that's what bugs me. Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree with that. I was, 
you know, at the time, like yourself, I would have paid pretty much anything I could. Um, So I really didn't didn't think about it too much, especially when they found her right away. But, you know, looking back at it, it's like, really, you know, it was it was basically a Google search. You you have her name in front of you. Right. Um, but but when when I did that through the agency, at least I had they had a, a post adoption services, um, and basically the first, first communications uh, with my with my first mom were through were through the agency. I would send the agency an email; they would give it to her. Okay. She would send the agency an email and would get to me, and it, it was like that for a little while. So it was nice to have the, you know the process be a little bit slower. So this was in December of 2010. Over the next couple months, we eventually went to emailing without the adoption agency, and then we went to texting, and then we finally spoke, and then we met. We met a week after my 40th birthday, the first week of March in 2011. So she actually came out here. She was still in the Chicagoland area, and she came out here to California, and we met. It was magical. I mean, I looked in her eyes. It was basically like looking into a mirror and I just held her and I didn't want to let her go. Wow. And I, I so you look a lot like her. I do. I oh, do. Nice. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and things went really good for, for quite a while. You know, they say that there's this honeymoon phase and I really didn't understand that until getting into reunion and finally reading some books. I was really unprepared. I thought I was, but, you know, upon reading some books and stuff, I decided that, you know, that there is this romantic period uh, or honeymoon period, whatever they call. But I it was definitely something I went through for a short time. But I, I would say a very, very short time because this is something that I wanted and I was going to go through any lengths. You know, I was going to accept her for whatever she was. I just wanted to be part of her life and I wanted her to be part of mine. I found out that she had a a daughter that was actually 20 years younger than me. And even though the age difference at the time I was 40, she was 20 or 19. You know, we would kind of text and talk. And actually, she was going to college at the time. And through talking to her, I was a high school dropout. And I ended up going back and getting a two-year degree a few years later. But I had never completed that four-year degree. And kind of with her... I'm not going to say her guidance, but with her, you know, she was an inspiration for me to go back to school and and get this degree. And, you know, Mm -hmm. things were going good and life was good. And I finally met her in June of that, uh, of 2011. And, and that was the first of three trips that I made back uh, to Chicago. And it was on the last trip where I realized that things were not going to continue, at least in the, the way that they were some of the worst depression I ever felt. And I never really understand, understood it or had closure. I never really understood what the problem was. And, but again, I went to school and I had writing goes back to the writing. I was able to, even though I was in, uh, I was there to basically learn business management. I was able to, it was very writing intensive, very reading intensive. And I was able to kind of use use some of my experiences in in my reunion and adoption in general and i was able to process a lot of that through writing and through going through school and i really just it's to me at the time it seemed like it saved me because i was in an incredibly bad bad place i had never really had a great sense of self-esteem or self-worth 
you know, looking at myself in the mirror and just not liking what I see. And then this happens with, with one person I thought that would stick with me. And it was, it, it broke me. It broke me in a lot of ways. But again, I had, I had a family still and I had this school and I had this business. So you just have to push forward. And that's what I did. Yeah. And I think you speak for a lot of adoptees when you say that. Yeah. I, I think that many times we do have to find something. Writing, another adoptee told me music saved him. Uh, so he became a very great pianist. Yeah. I, I love listening to his episode. Uh, I forgot the name, but Corey uh, yes, Quinn. Uh, yeah. Corey. Corey Quinn. Yeah. yeah he's 38. I consider that like young enough to be my son. And he Yeah. Yeah, like he he says music saved him and I and I get where we have to make we have to figure out a way to um come through it. And and this is what I wanna say. For your short time in the adoption community, you have done so much work. I can hear it in, in the things you share, the honeymoon stage, for example, uh the fog that is often mentioned. You have a quick study. <laughs> Uh, yes, you well, learned uh, yeah. so much. When I got when I get into something, I you know I I dive in with both feet. You know I'm, I'm in a part of a couple different Facebook groups, a, a, a couple other different uh, adoptee groups, and it's you know it, it's been amazing. And it led me to it led me to this writing course, which has been the best therapy I've I've had in this this whole time in this ten years. I was and one thing I'll say quickly about therapy is I think it's important for adoptees to find an adoptee competent therapist that mm-hmm. if that's something that they think they need is therapy I, I can't I can't stress that enough I spent the last three or four years in therapy not getting anywhere and I was able to find a, an adoptive adoptee com- competent therapist she's an, an adoptive mom here in Southern California and you know, we've only had six, eight sessions, but it's just been, it's been very healing. It's been very healing just, just having the resources that she gives me. You know, it's everything from meditation work to different groups. You know, she's guiding me down these paths and um, just really appreciated that I, I was able to, you know, know that there's even something like this. There's a website called Go Beyond Words that has a list of adoptee therapists. If anybody's interested in, they can go find it. Oh, that's wonderful. That that's I'm glad you shared that because uh, that's kind of my problem right now. I'm trying to find here in Tennessee an adoption competent therapist. It's not an easy fix here for me, but I too agree that therapy is important. There are some resources for us, so thank you for sharing sharing that. Of course. So is there anything you want to share in closing that I haven't asked? I think there's a lot of resources out there. And I think I think it's important for people to go find what works for them. My, my first exposure was really through a podcast, through the Adoptees On podcast, Haley, Haley Radke's. And then I joined the Facebook group. And then just so many things grew from there. Within a couple of weeks, I had... I had information to men's only adoptee support groups. And I find that incredibly healing as well, that other men kind of deal with the same stuff that I did because it's, I'm finding the adoption community is there's a lot more women than men. 
mm-hmm. which is fine. But I think I think it's important for guys to be able to have a place to go to. So there is a uh, a male adoptee group the third Wednesday of every month through AKA, which is Adopted Adoption Knowledge Affiliates. I definitely encourage any guys that that think that they might benefit from a support group like that to to look it up. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because it does seem like we outnumber you guys. And and so that's one other reason why I wanted to have you on because the more that men are heard from, I think the more it will resonate with men who haven't quite decided to get connected. I know plenty of men who don't want to search and they're fine it feels like that not, might not be the whole story. Uh, but if they see people like you show up and share, vulnerability may be seen as an opportunity, which I, I believe it really is for ourselves and for others. I thank you for, yeah. for this conversation, David. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Jennifer, one other thing I wanted to mention was uh, the National Association of Adoptees and Parents, or NAAP. The reason I mention them is because they have a group uh, called Adoptee Path to Recovery. From what I've understood in talking to people, adoptees are much more likely to get uh, involved in substance abuse, alcoholism, other, other, other addictions. It could be overeating. It could be anything. In my case, it was alcohol. And I find, I find this group to be very rewarding as I look as I look back on my my history of drinking to, to try to deal with the trauma. Uh, I just never had the I never had the tools at, at one time, and now I just feel like I do. And there's also other groups out there. There's an AA group for adoptees. You know, for uh, people that are into Alcoholics Anonymous, there is a group out there for adoptees too. So there's a lot of resources out there. I definitely just want to share them with anybody that you know, that's interesting. Oh, that's great. You are a wealth of information, David. And I'm so glad you shared um, NAAP. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, David. David says he's new to being connected with the adoption community, but I can't tell. He's done so much work in such a short period of time to connect and engage with other adoptees. He shared valuable information and resources for those struggling with an addiction of any kind and is passionate about how important it is to seek help. I found myself being a student with all ears as he shared what he's absorbed from our community through Facebook groups. David has read The Girls Who Went Away by Ann Fessler and American Baby by Gabrielle Glaser which he recommends to adoptees to gain a better understanding of first mothers surrendering their babies. I'm often talking about doing the work, quote-unquote, as adoptees, because it's rewarding in and of itself. We have a choice to view adoption as a good thing, a bad thing, or just as it is, being separated from our first family. David is a true overcomer, because being knocked down doesn't mean knocked out. I cheer him for all of his accomplishments over the years when he didn't get the healthy nurturing we all so deserve in this life. I, too, embrace the belief that the best way to approach any of my challenges is one day at a time. 
If you would like to share your adoption journey in an audio drama, please visit jenniferdianeghoston.com or onceuponatimeinadoptheeland.com. Thank you so much for being here, and be sure and follow me on Instagram at onceuponatimeinadoptheeland.